for checking out episode number 54 of the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz. This episode not only features three interviews with entertainers who have been really entertaining me during this current pandemic, but also some recommendations for some great new vinyl releases. A little bit of a change of format, but I think you're going to like this. First up is my interview with Brandy Rhodes. Brandy Rhodes is not just a wrestler, one half of the tag team, the Nightmare Sisters in AEW, but she's also the chief brand officer of All Elite Wrestling and the host of A Shot of Brandy, which is kind of a cooking show that often features wrestling talent that you can watch on YouTube. I think you're going to like this one. And if you noticed, this audio sounds a little better than previous episodes. I'm trying out a new microphone from JLab Audio. Let me know what you think of that and this new format. In the meantime, enjoy the interview with Brandy. Hi, Brandy. Can you hear me? Hi. Yes, I can. How are you? Great. And yourself there? Oh, I'm well. Very well. Thank you. So many things I want to ask you because the chief branding officer, an on-air talent, the host of a great cooking show, you wear a lot of hats. Uh, Coming into AEW, did you know that you were going to be wearing so many hats outright? Honestly, uh, I started that cooking show way before um, AEW was even a concept. So I guess just a lot of people weren't aware of it before, but um, I started Shot of Brandy many years ago. Um, well, not many years ago, but more more than two years ago. Um, and it's been kind of an on and off thing. So um, I always kind of figured I'd continue doing that. Um, I didn't realize that I would, I would still be doing that, but it, it's really taken off and turned into something really cool and great. So, uh, you know, we'll take what we can get there and we'll keep rolling with it as long as we can. When you started, were there actually aspirations of writing cookbooks and being a chef? Oh, no. God, no. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, I am a, I'm very much a, a casual cook. Um, I uh, like to just get in the kitchen and play around. Um, I'm also not, not a real chef by any means or cook, which it's hilarious. I, I make so much fun of the audience that watches Shot of Brandy because a lot of people that watch it are chefs. Like, what are they doing? Why on earth are they watching this show? All it's going to do is make you want to gouge your eyes out. But in all honesty, no, I I appreciate that they watch. Because honestly, I do pick up some tips here and there from people who like, you know, nicely will in the comments say, hey, you know that problem you were having there? All you got to do is this. And I'm like, ah, brilliant. All of my years of watching Food Network never picked that one up, so. (laughs) (laughs) This is kind of a deep cut question, but that kitchen looks familiar. Any idea is that the same kitchen that Tim from Tim and Eric uses for his kind of fake cooking show? Oh, I have no idea. Are they based in in Jacksonville? Uh, Oh, so it's in Jacksonville. I guess they were using the Atlanta studio uh, for Adult Swim, so Uh, kind of the same. Yeah, no, no. Um, So there's been... Honestly, over over the course of Shot of Brandy, I think we've used four different kitchens. 
One kitchen was, and I've been lucky to like, I mean, kitchens are a huge part of homes for me. So like one was our old home, um, which had a fantastic kitchen, but a completely different look. And then um, I used the kitchen here at, at our, I guess you say newer home. We've been in it, you know, about a year and a half now, but um, that's the kitchen that I most often use. And then um, I've used DDP's kitchen before because I've, mm -hmm. I've uh, done an episode with him and he has a kitchen in studio there at, um, you know, his uh, DDPY studio. So right. we use that and that was fun. And then the other kitchen is, um, it's part of a, a, a company called Dream Finders. It's a, a home, um, they build homes and, and they uh, have a, a model home set up right outside of TIAA Bank uh, Stadium. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a beautiful model home and it's got like, a, you know, the nice pretty white kitchen, which is what I, I like, you know, my kitchen is white and everything. So um, they let us use that, which is really fantastic. Um, so yeah, while we've been in Jacksonville for, you know, weeks and weeks at a time here, we've taken advantage of that and uh, it's been really nice to, to use that kitchen. Now, you mentioned the name of our mutual friend, Diamond Dallas Page. Everybody oh, loves Page. And when he does interviews, I would say one out of every four interviews he does, he refers to your husband as basically his nephew. Does that make you his niece by default? I don't know. Dallas has a lot of family members. Dallas, in that aspect, reminds me of my mom. Um, my mom has a lot of sisters and cousins and aunties and I had grandmas I had like eight grandmas growing up and that was really confusing for a child because like everybody is very quickly family to, to people with big hearts like that so Dallas in that aspect absolutely reminds me of my mom um, I'm sure Dallas would say yes I am a, a niece I guess, I guess at this point Good. Well, bringing it back to you and everything you're accomplishing, AEW is doing fantastic from all perspectives. Did you know that it was going to be this successful this quickly? Um, I mean, I knew that we had a great team that we were all pulling together here uh, to create AEW. And, um, you know, when you have a really great team and, and you've got kind of the, the right mix of folks all together, um, I think that you kind of expect things to go well. Um, things have definitely gone much, you know, better and faster than, than I expected. Um, mm -hmm. And that's because I'm just a very, you know, I, I guess I'm very realistic in that I set goals that are pretty attainable. I don't go, you know, too far. So that makes things like, you know, what, what's happened in the past year, year and a half really great because, um, I mean, we, I did not think that within that, first uh, year, TNT would grant us another year, or I'm sorry, another hour of content. Um, mm -hmm. I did not think that they would re-up our deal that quickly. Um, so, and, and our merch sales have been so amazing. Like every time I hear the numbers reported uh, weekly, I'm just kind of floored and blown away. So, you know, um, I don't think, I, I wouldn't say I set a low expectation. I think I set very reasonable expectations and um, we've surpassed that. So I think maybe, maybe now's the time for me to up those a little bit see how we do when it comes to performing in ring obviously there's extra layers of what you have to do and being in tip-top shape and all that are you that goal oriented in terms of your in-ring performances as well 
Uh, yeah, I, th I think I am. Um, I, and I think I'm really goal-oriented with all aspects of, of the in-ring performance. So uh, you, you mentioned that, you know, a lot of work and training and everything goes into that. Um, for me, I think physique is a huge part of what I, what I present when I, when I enter the ring. And, um, you know, I turned 37 uh, last month. And I'm still kind of one of the the most in shape people on the roster, which is great, <laughs> which is great because at 30, I mean, I found out the other day that, you know, we had a girl, I wrestled, her name's Kinsey Page. Mm -hmm. um, she told me after, after we had our match that today was her, her graduation. And I said, oh, I said, you know, what, what college did you graduate from? And she said, no, I graduated from high school. <laughs> and um, that really just almost sent me into, you know, a, a, a hermit crab, you know, hole that I was never <laughs> going to come out of ever again. But um, no, I mean, it's just, you know, it's a testament to if you think something like that is important, you got to stick with it. So I have my personal trainer, I have my diets, which are really achievable diets, actually. Um, I'm not somebody who's a crash dieter or anything like that. I have to, I have to be comfortable and I'd never want to be hungry like that. That's the number one thing I can't stand. So, um, and I'm just diligent and I just keep plugging and I'm like that in ring too. You know, I started in ring. Um, my debut in ring was terrible. Uh, it was my first time on television and first time in a wrestling match. And, um, you know, you can only go up from there and I just continue to go up every time. And it really delights me to see people saying, you know, Oh my gosh, I blinked my eyes and, and you got better. Um, yeah. Cause you were blinking your eyes and I was working my ass off. So there you go. Yeah. You just brought up an interesting point when you were talking about all that, when you said that, differences in age that are going on in AEW. I remember that when DDP had his match back in January, he was in the ring with MJF, who's in his 20s, with Andy, uh, I'm, uh, Blade, or is he Butcher? I, I don't know. Which Butcher. <laughs> he was in the ring with Butcher, who I believe is in his late 30s, if not early 40s, et cetera, et cetera. The huge range in ages is spectacular, and AEW since day one has been really keyed in on inclusion and all that how much of the inclusion is natural versus actually making a concerted effort to go and hey what about this box and that box we have to check those as far as our talent goes we've never done that we've never had to do it which is really really remarkable and it speaks to what the landscape of wrestling looks like today sure. um, if you're not having to you know search and find you know a demographic it's all just right there and available and there are all these people that are just fantastic in ring they bring great characters um they bring a lot of life to to wrestling and um it's been no no hard no hard way to find this you know and we've been actually pleased in the sense that you know we take a look around sometimes backstage and these just were the people that we wanted regardless of how old they are or what race they are or gender or whatever um so it's, it's really been nice. And again, like that just speaks to wrestling being so much more diverse these days um, than it's ever been. Sure. And you were talking about your in-ring career before, or at least I was. And you've got a great tag team going with the Nightmare Sisters. It's going to be interesting to see where all that goes. But you said before that you were goal-oriented in all facets of your life. And famously, your husband had a list of all the people that he wanted to wrestle while he was independent or before he calls it quits. Do you have a list along those lines? 
Um, I actually don't. I don't have a list like that because uh, for, I think our career trajectories are so much different. You know, he's been wrestling for going on 12 years now and here I am, you know, still considered a newer wrestler. So um, I think for me to make a list like that, the the outcome would be very different and perhaps disappointing. But um, (laughs) I do have goals when it comes to, you know, my in-ring work and um, I've never worked as a tag team before. Um, So this has been very interesting to me to see how, how this has turned out. And, you know, obviously Allie and I, we're not um, the most, uh, similar, I guess. Um, you know, she's, she's kind of, it, it may look like it's kind of dropped from my mind that, that she's a little bit, you know, untrustworthy and problematic, but it hasn't. Um, what I am focused on is winning and she's a, a veteran in, in this field. So she's somebody that I can learn from in ring, even though we, we tend to, you know, not always be on the same page with everything. We're, we're working on that. We're going to get there. But, um, you know, when I take a look back and I watch matches back with her and see different things that she did and, um, you know, different ways that maybe we could have done something together or worked together, um, it's really cool. And I think that that's um, growth for me as well, being able to work with somebody who is, you know, had, had so much more ring time than I have and, you know, really feels like she knows what she's doing. Um, and still sometimes I, I'm able to surprise her. So that's pretty cool. And again, that to me shows that there's growth here. Now I was on both of the Chris Jericho cruises and the first one you were wrestling on this second one. I don't remember if you were in ring, were you correct me if I'm wrong here. I was not on the Chris Jericho cruise and I feel like I, I can talk about it a little bit more. So I had every intention on being on the Jericho cruise and I actually had wanted to wrestle. Um, the day before we were supposed to fly to Miami, um, we fly to Miami, stay the night and then head out on the cruise the next day. Um, I went to the gym. Uh, I, I packed all of my things in, in, in my back seat from being in the gym. And then I drove about a mile from there to a different nail salon that I'd never been to before. But it looked really nice and didn't seem too busy. So I popped in to get my nails done. I came out, someone punched my window in, took everything out of my car that they could see, including my uh, bag, which had my passport in it. So I did not skip the Jericho cruise. I was robbed. (laughs) My passport was part of what was robbed too. Thankfully, I had my purse. So I still had my IDs and credit cards and all that stuff. But yeah, I, I got ganked. (laughs) <laughs> oh man well i haven't heard anyone say ganked since the first easy e album easy does it so credit See, don't your- do that because then here we are with the age thing happening again <laughs> and it's gonna make me go into that that little uh, hermit hole again <laughs> i'm older than you we're all good on that end uh, <laughs> so any idea uh if we're gonna see you on the third jericho cruise I would hope so. I mean, I've got every intention on being a part of it. Uh, I love what Chris has done with that. And um, he, he's just been really good to us all in um, having us on board and taking care of us and making sure that everybody feels good and safe. Um, I think that, you know, that's just going to be a matter of when, when it happens next. And, and uh, I'm really hopeful that I make it this time. <laughs> so your build is being from Detroit which in my opinion is the greatest music city in the world. Would you agree with that assessment? Well, so I will say this. I've lived in a lot of uh, major cities across the the world. And, you know, I grew up, I was born and raised in um, the Detroit metro area. And um, 
until I moved to Miami, because I thought, oh man, when I moved to Miami, like that's a, just like a party scene and there's going to be a lot of like music, dancing, everything. All of the music is behind Detroit. Like they get everything first and then it moves elsewhere. So like when I moved to Miami, songs that I was like hearing on the radio in Detroit weren't playing in Miami. And then about a month later, they started playing there. So I was like, what? That, so I really do think it's one of the music capitals for sure. And do you ever get back there or is that just all in the rearview mirror? Oh, no. My whole family lives in Michigan. So um, I go there as often as I can. Um, before, before the current situation, um, I had just gone there multiple times because um, my brother had had a baby. And so I went, you know, to see the baby and then found out my best friend who still lives there was pregnant. So then I went there to be with her and then I was there for Thanksgiving and then I was there for her baby being born. Thankfully, all of that happened before everything kind of got shut down because um, I was able to, to be there for, for all those moments. Going back to the whole AEW success thing, I love that your title is Chief Brand Officer. Did you come up with that? No, no, that's a, a common title these days. Um, it's a newer title. Um, you know, different companies have instilled uh, different ways as to utilize, you know, the chief brand officer. But um, my favorite thing about this is I've said at length so many times what a chief brand, at least an AEW chief brand officer, what I do, and people still have no clue. <laughs> they still have no idea. They're, they're giving me different jobs. Um, it, it's all, it, it's funny. but. Um, I really kind of am a jack of many trades in that, um, you know, the, the folks that we're on the phone with right now, uh, the PR gang, they all work with me and, um, you know, I, we, we work to get these interviews scheduled and approved and all of that good stuff. And then, you know, we're doing everything from press releases to um, writing up copy for, for a website, you know, different um, pieces of the website and, and just really working on everything um, in that realm, including every aspect of media, where we do kind of the media tours and we do the uh, post-show media scrums, things like mm -hmm. that. That's all my crew. Um, but then on the other, the flip side of that, um, I do have a little bit of a hand in marketing. Um, Dana Massey is the chief marketing officer, but um, you know, we work together on a lot of stuff. Um, you know, get it, just making sure that everything is kind of to code and, and approved, the, you know, the right ways and, and they're using, you know, logos correctly and all that good stuff. So there's just, um, there's a big crew that does a lot of stuff. Um, I, I feel like there's, I can't remember, but there's like one thing that some people just are really stuck on thinking that I do that I have absolutely nothing to do with. And it just makes me smile every time I see somebody say, well, Brandy should do that. Brandy, what do you think? And I'm like, nothing. I, that's one thing that I'm not getting paid to do right now. <laughs> yeah, it blows my mind, though, that you're able to do all of that, which for anybody would be a 60-hour-a-week job, plus wrestle, plus be in shape for all of that. So it sounds like you have a good team behind you. I'm not going to ask who's on the team. I'm not going to ask how many people are on the team per se, but how long did it take for you to put this team together? So here was the great thing um, about the formation of AEW. We had um, at our disposal the, the team of the Jaguars who've been doing this forever. So we had all of these fantastic people who were there and able to, you know, run point on certain things and help where we were lacking as we were building. And that was a, a real lifesaver. Um, and, and we've actually 
absorbed some of those people. They've come from the Jags to us now. So it's uh, really worked out really nicely because they were doing this stuff and then they realized, oh, I really like doing that and I really like wrestling. I think I want to go this direction. So that was really cool. Um, but I, I feel like um, as far as people who make my life a whole lot easier on the regular, um, people who, who don't get credit for it as often as they should. Uh, Leva Bates actually works directly under me. Um, she is my uh, CBO coordinator. She handles pretty much everything that I feel like I'm not going to get a chance to get to. And she really does take the ball and, and kind of just run with it. I feel like sometimes, well, I feel like there've been enough times that I've had to say, Hey, Leva, just do it and mess it up. And let me tell you, you did it wrong. Um, just do it. Don't worry about it. Like I trust you, just do it. And so now she's like to the point where she'll just, you know, take the ball. But there's still some times where she'll send me a message and say, I really just wasn't sure what to do here. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's fine. That's fine. Um, but yeah, Leva, Leva's a huge lifesaver. And then um, someone you probably know well, Mandy O'Donnell, mm -hmm. um, who's head of PR for us here. She really does an excellent job just keeping me informed, making sure that I'm not missing anything, um, which as you mentioned, you know, my, my life has a lot of work hours to it. So absolutely things would slip through the cracks if it weren't for those two people uh, constantly being able to be there. And, you know, every once in a while, I think I'm done for the day and, and I'm hang up the phone and then I get a message that says, Hey, are you getting on this call? And I'm like, Oh man, yep. I'll be right there. I'll be right there. <laughs> are you fortunate in that you're able to do a lot of emails and calls while exercising while doing cardio? Oh, I did a whole call uh, yesterday doing cardio. I had the phone hooked up to um, my speaker in my gym and um, was doing legit Tabata like runs at 8.2 on the treadmill and then was answering in between the 10 second like stops that I was having. Definitely out of breath. So I'm sure people were like, what on earth is she, is she trying to get into over there? But I think people realize we're all moving constantly. I mean, Tony Khan, he, I don't, I've never heard of him sleeping. I don't think he ever sleeps. He's constantly on a plane or in London or here or, you know, <laughs> who knows where. And, and he's, you know, up at all hours watching Fulham games and just, he's so busy. Um, so I think we kind of all are just taking a page out of his book. Like if Tony can get it done, I think we all have to be able to get it done. <laughs> Sounds like a fearless leader right there. So it doesn't sound like you have any free time, but when you do have free time, what do you like to do with yourself? Oh man. So I, I do have free time and I'm, I, I work in a different way than most. So like when I was in high school, college, um, the term papers were done in one night. They had to be because I can't wrap my head around it for, for more than one setting. So I would literally sit down and write 20, 25 pages in one night, check it, spell check it, reread mm -hmm. all of that stuff and just get it done. And, usually would do quite well on, on paper. So I figured, you know, that's just my way of doing things. And that's kind of how I function now. Like if the email comes in and I open it, I have to answer it or I'll forget about it. So let's just get it done. Um, I, I'd rather not leave things for later because that just gives me, you know, time to forget or pile work on top of each other. So I just get it done as I go. And then I do have, you know, free time at the end of the night where I can say, okay, I'm going to sit down and, and watch this. Um, I actually started watching a show called The Affair on Showtime, right, which right. is nuts. It's absolutely crazy. That show's nuts. And, and I keep watching it and I keep complaining about like how nuts it is, but I'm just like, from season to season, 
I have no idea what happened. Like how many t years went by and like, what are we doing? But um, it's been kind of my constant that I was like, okay, I'm going to get through this one. Um, but then I read a lot and, and a lot of my summer reading is just um, whatever. I like, I'll look online at like, what's the recommended reads for 2020 and sure. then I'll order a bunch of them on Amazon and just roll through them. Right now, I think I'm reading The Gifted School. I don't know who that's by, but it's definitely called The Gifted School. So if anybody's interested in looking up, it's good so far. <laughs> well, you are definitely inspiring people to up their game, to say the very least, in terms of everything you're getting done. So two quick questions, sure. and then you're done. And the first one is, this, this might take a little thinking right here. Before the quarantine, the pandemic, what was the last concert that you went to? Ooh, uh, Weezer, actually. I, I went to Weezer at Daly's Place, which is crazy, <laughs> but um, it was great. It was fantastic. Um, that's an awesome venue for concerts because the acoustics, the sounds amazing in there. Longtime Weezer fan or just you could get all access and you went? Um, no, I'm a big Weezer fan. Um, I think I have everything of theirs on vinyl. Uh, wow. I, yeah, I don't think I'm missing anything. I might be missing maybe one, but I'll probably, now I'm going to look into it and get it. I didn't think you were a Pinkerton fan, but I guess I know you are now. Yeah, I have Pinkerton. It's awesome. Yeah, no. Weezer was some of the first vinyl that I got. Cool. So the closer, Brandy, any last words for the kids? Uh, yeah, everybody just uh, continue to take care of each other in this time and, you know, uh, be safe and, and be respectful of each other. And um, watch Dynamite Wednesday night, 8 p.m. It's going to be crazy. Uh, oh, and this, this week, Dynamite um, it is a good one, especially if you love women's wrestling. We've got uh, Ivelisse and Diamante, which has never been on the show before, which is fantastic. And there may be some information coming that people might be interested in. That's all I'm going to say. I'm hooked. You got me. I'm watching Dark. I'm watching it all. So thank you so much for your time, Brandy. Keep up the great work you're doing on all ends. Thank you so much. Next up is my interview with Dokken singer Don Dokken. Don and I spoke about the new Dokken release called The Lost Songs 1978 to 1981. But before we get there, I want to give some other new music recommendations. And most of these are actually reissues. For example... The soundtrack to Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, the cult classic early 90s movie that was always on HBO, that one is now out on vinyl. I think they're also rebooting that movie, but don't quote me on that one. Another cool one, Willie Nile is one of the most unsung heroes of the power pop genre. Well, anyway, Willie Nile has a tribute album out called Uncovered ironically titled there, his songs being reinterpreted by the likes of Nils Lofgren from Springsteen's band, Graham Parker, Richard Barone, Elliot Murphy, Iridescence. Uh, speaking of legacy artist Paul Kelly, who's pretty much like the Australian Bob Dylan, one of the biggest artists in the history of Australia, he has a new collaboration album out with Paul Grabowski. Paul is an award-winning jazz pianist, so it's kind of a different direction than what you'd normally be hearing from Paul. Cheap Trick, one of my favorite bands of all time for Record Store Day, Sony has an archival live release out called Out To Get You, Live 1977, and that one features a great live show from the band at the Whiskey A Go Go in Los Angeles from 1977. Speaking of legendary artists with great concert albums, 
Neil Diamond is kind of known for a live album series called Hot August Night. He did five of those albums, and now all five of them are out on standard black vinyl and also through limited edition colored vinyl, thanks to the great folks at Universal Music. Some of those titles have never come out on vinyl before. Another cool Record Store Day release is the Wipers album, Is This Real?, a 40th anniversary edition, and it comes with an autographed concert poster signed by the singer Greg Sage. Also has a bonus 45 in there with four songs from the original four-track sessions for the album. That same label, Jackpot Records, has also put out the soundtrack to David Lynch's 1984-cut film, Dune. It is composed by Toto, yes, that Toto, and Brian Eno, and these recordings are sourced from the original master tapes. I think that one is limited to 2,000 copies. An album that was not previously on my radar, but is definitely on the radar of most Canadians, is Trooper's album, Hot Shots. It is a six-time platinum-certified album, 12 certified hit songs on that one. So this is a great discovery 40-ish years later that I'm glad I finally got to catch up to. Pick number 9 of 10 is the Portraits LP related to Peanuts, the great classic never-going-out-of-style cartoon helmed by Charles Schultz, which gave the world Snoopy and Charlie Brown and all that. This is the first time the Peanuts Portraits has ever been on vinyl. It's a bunch of the musical cues that you've definitely grown familiar with over the years that Vince Guaraldi and team made happen. Also great from Peanuts, there's a limited edition picture disc of Peanuts' greatest hits that came out last year. Last, but definitely not least, do you like Britney Spears? Well, a few of her classic titles have come out on vinyl and cassette thanks to the Sony folks. That includes Baby One More Time, all the remixes and all that, and the self-titled sort of Britney album. These are the musical picks of the moment. Back to Dawkins singer Don Dokken. His new album is indeed The Lost Songs 1978 to 1981. As the story goes, he found a bunch of old demos and recordings when he was cleaning out storage space, and he decided to build on some of those old recordings and also re-record some of those old songs. We spoke about that. We spoke about what a guy that's been prominent for 40 or so years still feels he has to accomplish his recent surgery and how that led to him not being able to play guitar but still having hope that he will one day. And also some little fun questions like, does anyone in the world call him Donnie? We answered that one late in the interview. I think this is a new side of Don Dockin for a lot of you, and I think you're going to enjoy it. Hi, Don. It's Darren for your interview. Still a good time? Yeah, man. We're good. Great. Am I getting you from New Mexico at the moment? Yeah. You're my last interview. I'm just sitting out the patio waiting for it to start pouring down rain. <laughs> Any excitement about baseball starting or is that off your radar? I, did, I thought it wasn't going to start. Oh, no. Uh, Major League Baseball started yesterday. It's very interesting to see who in heavy metal and hard rock loves baseball and who just hates sports. You never know. Well, you know, I'm really not into basketball. The only time I watch football is the Super Bowl. And, uh, but, you know, I was raised, you know, in L.A., so I'm a Do- I was a Dodgers fan and Angels. You know, I'm a, that's, that's where I'm raised, you know. Have they ever had you sing uh, the national anthem at a baseball game or something? Yes, I have. One of the most stressful things I ever did. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm My serious. band was more stressed than I was. I was reading the lyrics in the car and the limo on the way there. And they're like, man, you're going to blow this. 
And I'm like, I hope not. When I was reading the lyrics right before I went out in the field and there's like, you know, tens of thousands of people. I'm like, oh man, this is pressure. <laughs> well, you're still here today, decades later. And of course we were set up to talk about the lost songs. How long was uh-huh. it from finding those masters in your storage locker to actually having it out? God, you know, I thought I'd put these, you know, tapes on the reel and just, you know, transfer them to a hard drive and, you know, do some fixes and maybe put a real drum track. A couple of songs had a drum machine because there were demos and I thought I'd knock it out, but it, it took about four months just to finish it because I'm picky. I wanted, you know, some of the songs sounded old and they sounded dull and they sounded, you know, no life. And I wanted to put some high end and some punch and try to bring out the bass and bring out, you know, bring out the guitar and, you know, and I just ended up just, working my ass off trying to make them, you know, more modern. And then my guitar player, John Levin said, I think you went too far. They sound too good for being seventies. And I go, really? He goes, yeah, you, you mixed them too good. They sound like a couple songs sound like now. And I said, okay. So I actually went in and kind of unmixed them a little bit. Well, I don't know if everybody realizes that you do have producer credits outside of Dokken, that you did albums by XYZ and Great White and all that. Have you written for other artists or you just produced and sang backing vocals? Uh, I wrote part of the song Down on Your Knees by uh, Great White. Um, XYZ, I did most of the backing vocals because, you know, they were from France. And uh, they weren't used to doing backing vocals. So I just said, let's, you know, run a budget. So I I knocked out most of the backing vocals on XYZ. And I did a band called Shy. And uh, that song went top 10 in England. I've done a lot of records in my time, but Herman the German, the drummer from the Scorpion, I sang half that record. But uh, as far as writing, you know, I used to, I try to leave that to the artists. It's their music, you know. Right. So when you were going through your archives and you found all these unreleased tracks, how many did you find? Did you find dozens and you had to pare this down to 12 or so songs or was it really just everything? I found about six, six songs and uh, seven and a couple of them wouldn't play. The tape was too far gone. They're just the tape, you know, analog people don't understand analog tape. You let that thing sit for 35 years, you know, the tape just kind of unravels and decomposes. So I took the songs that were salvageable, and that's what ended up on this record. Do you have years and years of unreleased songs that we might eventually hear one day? Nope. Nothing. Zero. I I thought we had used every song in Dawkins, you know, from the 80s. Because, you know, when you make a record, you don't just write 10 songs. You write 15, you know, and you pick the 10 or 11 best. Tooth and Nail, Unlock and Key, Back to the Attack, all those albums had extra songs. But eventually those songs came out. But these songs, all these songs from 1970 to 1981, these are all songs that I wrote before the days that we called the George Lynch, Jeff Pilsen, Mick Brown days. This is all pre the original lineup. This is when I was a solo artist by myself, you know? So um, even one of the singles, Hard Rock Woman, my very first single I ever made, I didn't have a band. 
So uh, I had Rusty Allen, the bass player for Robin Trower, and Bill Lord, the, the drummer for Robin Trower. They came in and did the rhythm tracks. I didn't have a band. Well, there is great footage of you online performing the Little Red Book by Burt Bacharach and Hal David. Is that a cover yeah. you ever recorded? Uh, only that only that live performance in Germany. Got it. Are there covers that you did record over the years? No, I think Little Red... Well, on every record I've ever done, almost the last five or six records I've ever done, I've always picked one song that I loved that was you know, from the 60s or 70s that maybe the new generation doesn't know these songs. So I'd always pick one song and we'd do a cover. It was my way of trying to turn people on to like what I thought were amazing songs that they wouldn't like. Uh, for instance, on my last record on Broken Bones, um, I did a Jefferson Airplane song, you know? And it was a very obscure Jefferson Airplane song that Janice, uh, you know, didn't sing. And it was the, the guitar player sang it. And, uh, you know, I did, a, I did that, you know, because I always loved that song when I was like 14 years old. I think when uh, that album came out, I was a kid. And it was called Today. And I just loved that song. So I put it out in my last record. We put out Emerson, Lake, and Palmer's song from the beginning on one of our records. We put out the song One from Three Dog Night on one of our records, you know. I've always tried to put out one song from my past, my childhood, that I'm trying to turn people on to to say there's a lot of amazing music out there besides the 80s. That fandom of course, has gone to future generations. And we keep learning more and more people were inspired by Dokken over the years. And it looks like Billy Corgan was one of them. I know that he licensed Into yeah. the Fire for his wrestling company last year. Was that something that you were excited about? Yeah, I was just like, you're playing be amazing, you know. Uh, you know, I just don't know, you know, who likes what and who doesn't. And, you know, I mean, I just make the music and put it out there and yeah, I mean, when I heard about it, I was like, wow, that's really freaking cool. So, um, like I said, you know, there's people that are influenced by Dawkins, and I put out music on some of my records of, that I was influenced by in the 60s and 70s when I was just a little kid, basically. You know, Serialistic Pillow was one of the first records I ever bought. And the first album I ever bought was Cream. And I never, you know, and there's a three piece and it was Eric Clapton and Ginger Baker and Jack Bruce. And, and that album just blew my mind. And I was playing guitar and it just kind of changed my whole life. It just, it, it changed my life that I, this is what I want to do. I remember seeing footage of you playing solo gigs in recent years where you're singing and playing yeah. the lead guitar parts at the same time. Was it ever tough to kind of have to take the back seat on the guitar end, knowing that you actually could play all those parts yourself and be showy? Yeah. You know, I mean, the original Dokken lineup, when I went to Germany in 79, were a three-piece. It was Juan Crucier, who went on to rat, on bass and vocals, me on lead guitar and vocals, Greg Peck on drums. And we went to Germany as a three-piece, and I was used to playing guitar and lead vocals. It wasn't a stretch for me. I really didn't see myself as a singer. I, I saw myself more as a guitar player, you know, 
And so, you know, when Lynch came in the band, uh, our first tour with Bluster Cove, I was still playing guitar. It was George was playing and I was playing. But then the record company asked me to put the guitar down and just be a front man. And I was like, it's kind of like asking somebody not to have sex anymore, you know? (laughs) (laughs) That's a unique way of looking at it. Did you write any of the Dokken catalog on piano over the years or was everything guitar based for your composition? No, all the songs that I wrote, you know, on guitar were written on guitar. And, uh, you know, Jeff was a great, Jeff's a very multi-talented guy. He plays bass, he plays guitar, he plays piano, he's a great singer. So he wrote a couple piano ideas that we turned into songs. But all the Docker songs, you know, there was always this thing like, we were like a Van Halen, like Eddie Van Halen's a good singer, he writes the music. You know, I wrote a lot of the music. In My Dreams, Alone Again. God, there's a lot of songs I wrote, you know, on guitar. But people seem to think that I was just a singer and George was a guitar player, but that wasn't the case. I was the guitar player. So I wrote a lot of the hits, and I'm happy about that. And George wrote some great songs, too. Right. So you are establishing that Dokken was a band before the lineup with George, Jeff, and Mick was there, to say the least. Are there a lot of archival live recordings? Are there live shows from 81, 82, and 83 that you could eventually put out? Yes, but we're not going to. Is that more of a sound quality thing, or you'd prefer not to soil the no, reputation? No. Actually, there's a, on YouTube, there's a live recording of us in Milwaukee in 1981, I think. And I'm playing guitar, and George is playing guitar. And we're actually doing dual solos, like harmony solos together and that was recorded in milwaukee and the sound quality is pretty damn good you know and uh then we had an album out called uh oh it's we've done so many records there was a record called something like from the beginning or something like that and it was a lot of live recordings of us in the early days and they sounded great you know but i i don't have any desire to put out you know, live recordings. We we did a two live albums in Japan. Um, I don't want to regurgitate all this stuff. I, I look forward. I don't look backward. I don't want to look backwards. There's no point in it. I want to move forward, write new songs and new music. And I don't see the point in putting out, you know, live recordings of us 35 years ago. What's the point? So looking ahead with everything, being a band that's played arenas and amphitheaters and all that for close to 40 years now, is there anything that you haven't accomplished that you're still hoping to as a musician? Mm. Well, just want to be healthy, you know, get healthy. I mean, everybody knows that, you know, I had surgery seven months ago and it didn't go well. And, you know, I'm right now, my only wish is that my right hand and arm that's paralyzed will come back someday. You know, because because the biggest bummer is I can't play guitar anymore. So, but then I say, well, I played guitar for fifty years, so I can't play anymore. I had fifty years to play guitar, but I'm hoping that my hand will come back and my arm. That's what I want to accomplish to play guitar again. And as far as you know, what I want to accomplish in life is what everybody wants in life: peace, happiness. You know, live a good life. You know. 
I live up in New Mexico now on 13 acres of forest and middle of nowhere and got our four big ass dogs and, you know, I'm happy. You know, I don't really don't see I need much anymore. I already went through my Rolls Royce Ferrari phase in the 80s, you know. I don't really care about stuff like that anymore. Really refreshing to hear all that. Uh, can I ask you three quick questions and then you're a free man from doing press today? Yeah, I'm done. Yeah, you're my last guy. Yeah. Okay, first question. One of my favorite things that you ever did was the Hearing Aid compilation song, Stars. Was that a positive experience for you to be part of? Yeah, that was wonderful. Because, you know, we had toured with Dio. Doctor and Dio did a tour together. So, you know, Ryan and I became very good friends on that tour. You know, I, I didn't think that I had anything in common with Ronnie, but it turned out on the tour, we had a lot in common. Sports, he liked, every time I get up in the hotel in the morning, he'd be reading the sports page, and he was into, you know, football, baseball, basketball. You know, Ronnie was a very learned man and well-educated, and, and uh, you know, we'd talk about stuff like that, and, you know, and he was just very nice. He was just a really great guy. So, uh, you know, it was, it was great. Well, it still sounds great to this day. And you have my favorite lines and vocals in that song. At least you can recognize me, right? That was the problem on that album. No offense to all those singers, but I couldn't tell who's who singing, you know? So, uh, you know, Ron, I said, Ronnie, can I just be me and just sing like me and not try to sound like you? And <laughs> cause it's his song, you know? And uh, so, but everybody always says, yeah, you can hear my vocal lines. You can tell it's me. So that was a big plus because I didn't want to sound like the other singers. I just wanted to sound like myself. And you did. Uh, my next question, does anybody out there call you Donnie or are you Don to everybody? Um, that's funny. Well, my agent calls me Donnie. Uh, you know, my kids call me dad and, uh, yeah, some pe most people call me Don. I, some people call me Donnie. You know, I don't know why. Most of the people that call me Donnie probably don't know me that well. A lot of my musician friends all call me Double D. They don't call me Donnie or Donnie. They say, hey, Double D, what's up? They all call me Double D. Well, then, Double D, my last question for you is any last words for the kids? Listen to music. I mean, it's it's from whatever's going on in your life. And I was raised in foster homes and my escape was music from the things that weren't going so well when I was a kid and music saved my life and it can save anybody's life. You know, I think music is music. Music to me is a very healing thing. It heals you, you know? So that's my advice to, the new kids out there and new generation of music lovers, just remember that it's not just music. It's healing. It's good for your soul. Well said. When this all ends, I hope to see you live in New York. Thank you for the many years of great music, Don. Thanks, boss. Stay safe, man. You too. Take care now and hope to see you playing guitar in the very near future. I am really, that is my totally, my total goal right now is to, for my hand to come back and they said maybe a year year and a half and so i'm just counting my counting the days till i get my fingers moving last but definitely not least is my interview with chris siddiqui 
and Nigel Downer of the show Bit Players. Bit Players is on CBC Gems, produced for Canada, but it's now also streaming through Amazon Prime in the U.S. Simply put, Bit Players is one of the funniest shows that I've discovered this year. I watched all the episodes in about two days, and that's something that I pointed out to Chris and Nigel during the chat. But one of the most flattering things possible that you hear during the chat is they were aware of my work as well. The last episode of this podcast had an interview with Sinbad, and Nigel referenced that one within the chat. So not only are they among my favorite actors at the moment, but among my favorite people as well. I really do hope to do a part two with Chris and Nigel, and I really do hope that there is a second season of Bit Players. Really, one of my favorite shows of this year, and it will be a crime to comedy if it's not picked up for another season. Enjoy. I'm one of those people who watched Bit Players in like two days, two sittings, basically. Oh. Absolutely love the show. How okay. long was it from like coming up with the idea of it to actually having it on the air? Years. Oh, maybe, yeah. maybe four or f maybe five years? Yeah, I, I think it's around that for sure, dude. I think, I think, yeah, in the four and a half, five year mark for sure. Yeah, I mean, I thought of it. I had this idea. And then uh, I, I bounced it around my head for a whole bunch. And then I was like, and Nigel and I have been friends for years and years. And I was like, right. I, gotta, I should pitch this thing. I should pitch this thing to my, one of my best friends. Uh, but it was just an idea I had. So from then, I remember us just getting a coffee. And I'm like, yo, man, I have this idea. What about this idea? Check this idea. And then <laughs> I guess it was five years later to be like, okay, our idea is done. Yeah. So a while, yeah. And were video games part of the original pitch? Because obviously the name is a pun. There's the great animation in there. But I don't think a lot of people are eager to put in any kind of animation when they're trying to make a simple DIY kind of project. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it, it was, they were always there. Those visuals were always there from day one. That was a type of just kind of visual silliness that I had been used to for a very long time. I've been working with one of my other friends who did so many of those, like especially in the last episode, he did all the fireballs and, <laughs> and stuff like that. But he's been a, a, an editor and a motion graphics designer for years. So we've done tons of sketches in the past with visuals and little shorts. So all those visuals I knew could already work because I've already done them in a smaller kind of, you know, idea wise. But I was just like, oh, well, I, I just want to film my show with all of these visuals and I know their work. So those were in all those video game visuals and references were in from day one. It took a lot of explaining though to people be like, what's Mass Effect? What's a dialogue wheel? So like, okay, hold on, let me do this. But yeah, we, we always had to use like two or three examples to just explain one like uh, visual effect. Like we always yeah. had to try and dig deep and be like, okay, if people know Mass Effect or if they don't know Mass Effect, what's the next thing? Okay, so how do we do an alert? Uh, Metal Gear Solid, do you guys know that one? No, okay, cool. Uh, what <laughs> if, like we, we had to really dig deep in the catalog and to Chris's point, out the gate, uh, we knew we wanted to have a lot of fun and a lot of like arcade type uh, visuals in there. And then uh, Chris and I, our relationship is built on uh, video game music. Like it's built on right. like original soundtracks. So, and I'm a physical performer, so is Chris. So we just knew that we could throw in 
you know, fireballs. We could throw in whatever we wanted to, and we could make it happen because we love that genre. We love it. So, yeah, I've read that and heard that. Uh, Entertainment Tonight Canada was a great interview that you guys did about oh, wow. video game soundtracks bringing you together. Is yeah. there a particular era of video games that you see as the golden era of video games? Ooh, wow. That's great. Um, I would say for me, I, I think it was when, uh, when PS3, like uh, PS2, PS3, I think it's around that era, like the early, early 2000s for me, because that was really the transition from like, you know, all our pixel art and things getting a lot better. Like I know it was late nineties, but the music really stepped his game up with games like and I just mentioned, like Metal Gear Solid. And once we got into the next generation of consoles, mm-hmm. that's when we really got amazing artists to score these games. And if you were paying attention, you'd listen to it and you're like, oh, this song is longer than just a regular loop for a level. Like this is a, a two and a half minute, three minute track, you know? I think there, is, it, is it PlayStation 2 for you or do you go back to the 8-bit? Uh, it's it's tough, man. I mean, 8-bit is so nostalgic, but I also, I feel almost like we're in the golden age of video games now, too, because there's so many PCs, so many console games, and so many variety. I saw a game just called Coffee Talk, and you sit in the cafe, and you I talk. I just downloaded it. I just yeah, downloaded no way, it. Really? <laughs> yeah, about two days ago, yeah. Oh, right? Like, it's, I, games are so, uh, so, I think way more experimental now just because they have the technology and the storytelling to do but i also think golden age is like old school like sort of late 80s sierra games and those point and click games you know what you I mean? mean like leisure suit larry oh yeah. dude leisure suit larry king's quest police quest all the quests Space really quest. beamish yeah really man. beamish yeah. holy yeah. moly and even all the lucas arts games after that like full throttle all the indiana jones point and click adventures but that's all PC, so I don't know. I feel, I feel like it, maybe we're still in the golden age. Can, if, if, can the golden age start when video games start and continue until current day? Like, is that a whole age? Fair. I mean, we if we're here 2,000-plus years as a civilization beyond anything in the Bible and all that. Right. 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> I actually just uh, listened to um, – I bought the Turtle in Time. Turtles in Time. I bought the, uh, the vinyl. So it's, uh, it's nice. It's green. You know, it's, it's packaging is beautiful. Yeah. But listen, man, that is hard to listen to because it's just like – And it's just like it's too much. It's too much. Yeah, man. <laughs> well, bringing it all together because I have music questions to ask you guys later, and I know – both awesome. of you have musical roots in different ways, CMT and all. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> man, but, you dig it. Yeah. research. <laughs> comics, video games, uh, we can talk about Second City and all that. There is an episode where Mark is wearing a Ted DiBiase million dollar man shirt. Was yes. wrestling also part of the vernacular as well? <clears throat> I mean, not for me. Maybe the old 80s stuff, like Junkyard Dog and Macho Man Hi, Randy guys. Savage. But, yeah. like, uh, that's all our friend Mark, actually. Mark is a dear friend of ours. Oh, there's a JYD figure that Nigel... <laughs> yeah, just, got, just got him on hand right yeah, here. They're ready. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark is wow. a dear friend of ours that we wanted to put in the show, and that was just his choice. I think he actually brought that shirt to be like, can I wear this? And the, our wardrobe, Vanessa, was just like, yeah, wear it. It looks great, too, eh? 
I'll say so. Uh, <laughs> and are most of the people on the show your friends rather than people that were casted? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I, I feel like there is maybe, honestly, maybe one or two people that we had maybe saw in the audition room during our careers as actors, as performers. Um, but for the most part, everybody we already knew. So it just, it just made for such a great time on set. It made, we knew their repertoire. They knew ours. We knew their cadences. So for the most part, yeah, I mean, I would say like 95% of the people that we uh, acted across were already friends of ours. So something that came up a little bit ago from both you and from me is that you met in Second City. One of you was the understudy for the other, and that is not the first time in history. Uh, Stephen Colbert and Steve Carell, I'm not sure who was the understudy for who in Second City, but that stuff kind of happens. That is where you two met, though? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it was Carell was Colbert's understudy, I think. I can't remember. But yeah, Nigel and I, we had met, uh, I mean, doing classes too. There's so many different classes you can take at the Second City. So we met during class and then we met performing with each other. Uh, and then we started working with each other and hanging out. And then, yeah, at one point, so I had gone to the Second City main stage and Nigel was my first understudy. And uh, what was great about that is that later on, when Nigel went up to main stage and I had taken off, they couldn't find anybody to understudy. So they just asked me to come back in and understudy for Nigel. And that was only for one show for like a week, but it was like, it was great too. Cause with second city, they're always going like, Oh, we need a black dude. We need a Brown dude. But this one was like, Oh, okay. These two are interchangeable. This is great. Just keep swapping them. Just keep yeah, swapping them. <laughs> they're the same guy. Just swap them in and out. <laughs> second city is beyond intriguing to me because it, It'll have an era where it looks like for five years, everybody from sketch comedy that makes it to television comes from there. Then it has like five to 10 years where it's not cool. Then it has five to 10. Like, for example, we talk about the original SNL cast. Great. And then for a couple of years, no one was coming out. And then eventually Chris Farley and all that. And then nobody. And then Tina Fey and that crew. And then nobody and all that. What was it that drew you both into Second City in the first place? Wow. Uh, well, to be honest with you, I, I got let go from my graphic design job. <laughs> so uh, I'm actually, uh, I went to school for graphic design. And during the, uh, uh, during the, you know, the, the economic crisis or like, you know, the recession or whatever you want to call it in 2008, 2009, uh, I was at a design job. And unfortunately, they couldn't hold on to me any longer. They did it as long as they could. But in the background, I was always doing uh, second city classes. I was taking like level A and I just, I fell in love with it right away. Uh, and then I just took all the levels. So then by the time I was graduating the conservatory program, which is a year, um, I had been let go from my job. So I was freelancing design. But then somebody asked me from, uh, from Second City if I could come in and have a meeting with them. I was like, okay, sure. Um, so I went in and have a meeting. And that's when they offered me my first job with uh, Toronto's education company, which is where we performed for kids in high schools. And then they came to, uh, they came to theater and we went to their schools. And then the rest is history. So, I mean, that's kind of how it happened for me. And it's just right place, right time, but also a love for comedy and a love for teamwork. Like I love working with, with teams and I love joking with people and just bouncing ideas off each other, which is, I think, a lot of the success that BitPlay has had. But yeah, so that's, that's my history with it. Yeah, mine was, uh, I'd always uh, performed, well, not really, right? You, when you come from a Pakistani family, your dad's always like, 
you know, you must be a lawyer or a doctor. So everything, my dreams of performance were kind of looked down upon in my family. But I also had three other sisters who my parents could pour their uh, idiosyncrasies onto. So I just kept performing. And then I did it a bunch in high school and messed around. And then after that, I was like, I can't, I, I don't, I tried out for theater school, but I was a, just a, it's a bit too much for me, I think. It <laughs> took itself very seriously. Yeah. Um, so then I started going, I went to university and started working on uh, uh, my film specialist degree. Uh, and then I was like, I can't, I have no money. I, I was putting myself through school because my parents, they had already spent thousands of dollars putting my sisters through school. And I was like, I can't finish this. This is so much time. So I had just known that so many of my friends were like, hey, Second City has classes. Second City. So at that time, I was also working full time. And then I was like, well, you know what? Let's, let's sign up for these classes. I, I love performing. Comedy and sketch had always seemed like my bag anyway. I grew right. up watching SNL and Monty Python and Mr. Show and all kids in the hall. So I was like, I, I, I love sketch. And improv was, I was so scared of doing stand-up, but I was like, improv is so, so group-oriented. I really navigated towards that, or, or, or what's the word when you go toward, you gravitate, gravitate not navigate, yeah, you gravitate toward they it. They both work. Yeah. Something like that. You guys know what I'm saying. But, and so from there, it was just like, okay, I'm just working at, you know, a record store and doing comedy classes at night. And then it just kept rolling into just like Nigel. Hey, do you want to do this? Do you want to be part of this? Do you want to perform in this? And then you realize, oh, I can, I can now make a living off this thing. Well, that's going to lead to my next question, which is intended to actually inspire people. You guys like me, you do a few things to make a living. You, you pair it all together and you're like, okay, this is, this is a pretty good living, but it wasn't always that secure. And of course, as an entertainer, you never quite feel like, okay, I'm set for life because there's always the, well, even if I made a bunch of money here, what's the next gig? What's the next thing I'm doing? He has yeah. a production deal. He has a better production deal. Yeah. I'm curious when both of you felt secure, like, well, this is going to be my path and I don't have to go back to temping. <laughs> I think for me, it was uh, when I realized I could perform at night and then teach, you know, I think Nigel and I falling into the world of improv, we realized that we could perform constantly and get really good. But then at the same time, teach, we could teach on the weekend to kids or in the evening to adults. And you get yourself a few classes spread throughout the week at different theater. We also have a bunch of theaters here in Toronto that we could go out and teach there as well. So you kind of line yourself up and go like, okay, I can pay my bills. I guess the first time was like in my late twenties. I'm now in my forties, my early forties, but in my late twenties, I was like, okay, if I, this is all I have to do. I, I just have to work here, do these shows, teach these classes, and then I can pay these bills. Yeah, but then that of... quickly vanished because you lose that job and you get this. I mean, you know what it is. You're only as good as your last gig, right? Yeah, it's a, lot of, it's, a lot, it's a lot of piecemeal, right? It's a lot of, like, to Chris's point, trying to find out how things can line up. And so for me, uh, luckily, I, I do have that design degree, so I can always bounce to freelance graphic design if I need to. So I always kind of have that. So, you know, designing posters or comic book covers or album covers, whatever the thing is. 
So when I was freelance designing, I was still, you know, I'd do that during the day, nine to five-ish, if you will. And then I would just like book it over to a show for a Friday, Saturday night or whatever and make it work. And then slowly I realized that I was performing or teaching more and designing less and designing was actually getting in the way. And, and that's to mention like, you know, tons of auditions for commercials and for TV and stuff. And then once I got on a little bit of a roll and started booking those things, that's when I was like, okay, I think I, think I can do this. And, you know, I used to say, uh, you know, I had an anniversary uh, come up and I was like, oh man, it was my first year of just paying the bills, just, just completely, completely from TV and film and, and, and performing. And then that became a second year and a third year. And to this day, it's been all of that, which is phenomenal to think of. But yeah, so that's, that's kind of how it made it work. What about you, Darren? I mean, you got a Miss Pac-Man arcade <laughs> oh. stand. Uh, you must be sitting pretty, man. So yeah. I listened. I listened to your uh, your interview with Sinbad, and I know he brought it up. So I was like, I was so excited. I was, I was so excited to see it. Yeah, dude, I was so excited to see this uh, this video game machine. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Uh, no, it's it's bootleg. It's got twenty one hundred games on it. Yes, I was gonna say, nice, right on, right on. When your wife, uh, you know, wants it there, like Sinbad pointed out, or got it. <laughs> You know that things are pretty good, but then over time, you kind of realize that the arcade game is furniture, and it's appealing furniture. So uh, a lot of people want to come over your home a second time because you've got the arcade game. So it's right. kind of a lure in there. Do either of you have uh, arcade consoles or anything like that at home? I wish. Yeah, I, I just have I just have all of the consoles. I don't have uh, <laughs> yeah. like I and it's ridiculous, man. Like literally, I'm, so when uh, when Spider Man came out two years ago, uh, yeah. I bought a PS4 refurbished. Uh, I'm, I have money, but not that much, and and I bought it just for the one game, like for the one game because I needed to have it. And now I just have this ridiculous catalog of games. Chris and I will game, man, on average probably four times a week together. Wow. And we can flip between consoles, anyone. We can do Switch, we can do Xbox, we can do PS4. It's ridiculous. It's great. I'm waiting just to get enough money so I can buy like a souped up gaming PC. Yeah. That's what I want now. I don't know how to follow up with that one. Uh, <laughs> gotcha. I guess I'll throw it back to a great uh, question, quote unquote, great question about bit players. And, and that's when you created the show, it's a CBC product, which even as a New Yorker, I know that's basically the BBC of Canada and it's got its different brands, kind of like there's channel four or that kind of thing. Yeah. Over here in the States, I know about it because it's on Amazon Prime. So in a way, you're kind of indie here. And then in Canada, not say corporate, but like mainstream. So it's going to mean different things in different territories. How are you finding out that people elsewhere in the world are learning about the show? Is it primarily word of mouth? Yeah, really word of mouth. I mean, that's the other thing, too, what's interesting you bring that up because CBC has it's, – it's not even mainstream because CBC – has their televised stuff and then they have their internet stuff mm -hmm. and we were specifically on their internet stuff you know not Nigel and I went in thinking oh we could pitch this as a tv show we had really thought it out wide enough for it to be half hour episodes uh but they say hey why don't you why don't we um we've got a lot on our plate right now which I don't know what that means when networks say you got a lot what are you talking about you can make tv shows whenever you want man anyway <laughs> they go why don't you make it for web we're like, yeah, sure, we'll make anything. We got nothing right now. Um, so we started making that. And the kind of 
we realize too the beauty of that is that a you know obviously you don't get that national advertising scheme that like you know baroness von sketcho did or schitt's creek does right yeah you get a smaller word of mouth and it is it is online uh you know we're starting to advertise on podcasts right now because we think that's kind of where the niche will lead us you know we've got a show about video games and weed and being black and brown so it is kind of niche anyway but at the same time being on the web and and Nigel and I had spoken about this recently, but looking back in retrospect, it's like we probably there there probably would have been a lot more people watching what we said if we were on national television. Whereas us being a, a bit of a smaller platform, we kind of felt a bit more free to say what we want. Mm-hmm. So word of mouth definitely is the big thing. It's word of mouth. It's Twitter. It's Facebook. It's trying to share clips because so much of our show has little like bite-sized visual bits that we could just splash them here and there. So it's been a lot of that. And again, it's great to see it out there. If there's, if there's one upside to the pandemic and the quarantine, it's that my wife and I got to see a lot of TV shows that we didn't really know. So you guys were a discovery letter. Kenny, I didn't know about that. Yeah. (laughs) It looks like to me, Canada's just got this incredible, incredible TV and comedy scene hybrid that's going on that doesn't reach American audiences. Was, was there any concern on your end when you were launching the show about the American market, or is it just more like, this is for Canada, and if it gets out, that's great? Oh, no, I, I think there is, uh, if I may, Chris, speak for both of us, there is definitely concern about that because we... One, we have a lot of American friends. Not only are they snowbirds, so Canadians that li- are living in LA and trying to make it, but just around, you know, from border to border. So we just thought this was definitely something that could be uh, universally shown and, and just at the same time. Like, ideally, we would love to, to hit the web all at the same time. Here, Canada, here, America, here you go, nerds, nerds of color, people <laughs> of color, like comic book, like everybody, you know? So especially in, in New York, I mean, one of my favorite spots is Midtown Comics. Like I'm there every time I go to New York, I hit it Times Square location, I'm there, you know? So it's like, I know when we know how big that market is, but also specifically how big the nerd market is there, you know? So it's, yeah. it's, it's, we're so glad that it's finally reached the States and it's reached the UK. We both have, again have friends and family in the UK. So the fact that it is this little... Uh, the little train that could, if you will, you know what I mean? It's just kind of chugging along, but it's catching on and it's catching some fire. And it's got some really great relatability stuff, not only the nerd stuff, but it's got some real hearts, some real friendships, some real love in there, you know? So we're glad that it's finally reaching the market and getting there because, I mean, damn, it took a long time and I'm glad it, it finally got to, got to you guys. Yeah, and the season ends without spoiling anything for anyone. Kind of a few cliffhangers, to be honest. Yeah. Season two, is it written? Is it being considered being done? Where is it at? It's like, you know, when you you had a dream and you kind of forgot it, but you kind of remember that? I think it's at that stage right now, season two. <laughs> We're kind of like, does is anyone still watching season one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. idea. I mean, there's tons of ideas we've had that uh, didn't even make season one that we had written down. We're like, okay, well, this is... And, I mean, it seems like since we've released this thing, this came out on Boxing Day. Mm-hmm. And it feels like uh, an entire decade has passed since yeah. then. 
because of absolutely everything that's happened to our globe. So season two, for what I, in my mind, was going to be fun and innocent and continue the journey, now almost feels like we got a lot of shit to unpack, yeah. man. <laughs> <laughs> One of the blessings of your show, I don't know if I cut you off there, Nigel. Did I? Oh, no, not at all, not at all. One of the blessings of your show is, with, with an exception to maybe things that come up in the last two episodes, you could start at episode four and not really have spoiled anything or not really know who the characters were. Is that by design or just coincidence that the episodes aren't super continuous aside from the thug number four stuff? That was by that was by design. It, it, we we at, at first, Chris and I always love a good show that has like a nice a nice arc. Especially I, I myself, like I'll go all the way to the Law and Order formula, like that that Dick Wolf formula, where you have these giant seasons with this massive overarching story. So, but every you could watch a single episode. You could watch episode like twelve in the middle of season three, and it really doesn't matter. So we all we had that thought, but then with the the help of some amazing people that helped us kind of. Uh, dissect and, and, and write more and write less and kind of get into the minutia of the story that really helped us create this giant arc but also to your point Darren just have these little microcosms of episodes without having to finish off the whole season obviously the massive payoff is you just watch the whole thing like you did in two days which is great um, because it makes way more sense you know but but for sure if you want to watch one episode and you and, and you, you're about it please by all means yeah, I think that was a fun thing, too, about designing it that way is is kind of having that confidence of knowing that it'll work. You know, again, Nigel and I coming from the Second City, you build up, you perform every single night. Mm -hmm. Every single night you're in front of at the least 20 people, at the most 400 people. So going out, you grow these instincts of going, this might work. I think this will work. And this was definitely one, again, having done so many shorts with visuals in them i was like i don't want to tell a story firstly i don't want to be conventional uh, if we get this chance and we get to do it online let's be unconventional because that's kind of what the medium is anyway right? right so with that it was let's just do let's have episodes that are stylistically insanely different from each other but still work in uh the the story of the world but yeah, you could watch it, like you say, you could watch it episode four, episode seven, episode two, episode one, and still get the gist of what's going on. Well, being mindful of your time here, I'm going to ask two more questions, and then you are free to do whatever you like to do, and I think I know what you guys like to do. Yeah, 1,000%. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> and the first question was, another discovery of mine as a result of the quarantine, the pandemic, was the show Detroiters. Are they friends? Are they influences? Are they both? Well, uh, they're, they're friends. So uh, Sam Richardson, who's uh, one of the stars of the show, him and Tim, Tim Robinson, Sam I met uh, in the early 2000, so like 2008, 2009-ish, uh, a bunch of us from uh, Toronto Second City Tour Co. We went down to Chicago on our own volition. We said, you know what, let's just take a weekend. Let's go down there. So Second City, Chicago set us up, set us up with tickets to the main stage show, set us up with tickets to the ETC show. And so I met Sam because he was performing at that time. And that guy was such a massive inspiration to meet him and just to watch him perform. So, I mean, that within itself was like, oh, my God, I know this guy. Uh, and we've kept in touch off and on 
since our meeting. And then, you know, fast forward to when Detroiters came out and I, I just could not watch it fast enough. Like it just, it just, it, the chemistry again between those two, maybe that's, and that's probably why you brought it up, Darren. It's very similar to the chemistry that I think that Chris and I have. You can tell that we're just, we're just going off on each other and having a great time, you know? So, yeah, so I think there's some, some similar, some parallels there for sure. Yeah, definitely. I met Sam doing, he came up here to film some stuff for uh, Second City and uh, I met him up here. And the great thing, again, just like Nigel, is that Sam and I, we related to each other talking about Ninja Turtles. <laughs> that dude, I only ever, I mean, I, I, I barely do I reach out to him and be like, Sam, congratulations on all the stuff. I'm like, I'm more like Sam. Check out this new uh, Raphael uh, figurine. It's new. So we're just passing Ninja Turtle stuff back and forth. <laughs> wow. Uh, <laughs> much respect on all those ends. Uh, <laughs> so in closing, any last words for the kids? Uh, I would like, I've somebody said to you, Darren, I don't think you knew how, how nerdy you were going to get with us. Like, I don't think you were prepared for <laughs> for going uh, that, that JYD figure just appearing oh. out of nowhere. Yes. Is, one of the top five interview moments I think I've ever had in doing thousands of interviews. So thank you very much. Oh, very nice. Bless, 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 bless. <laughs> uh, any last words from you, Chris? What do you think? Um, yeah, stay safe, everyone. Please watch our show um, because we think it's good. We want all those nerds of colors out there to feel like there's something out there that's representing them. And uh, please stay safe and wash your hands and Black Lives Matter. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I think I share the very same sentiments. Read, read some comic books, not only the, the Capes and Cows, which I always say, but read some independent stuff. There's some amazing uh, books or graphic novels, whatever you want to get into. There's some gorgeous work out there and also by uh, authors of color. So please, and in different voices, the LGBTQ community. So please read some of those books. And again, you know, wash your hands, stay safe, Black Lives Matter. And uh, we appreciate all y'all. Guys, can't thank you enough for this. Hopefully we'll do a part two where we talk about music and specific games and all that. But thank you so much for your time and keep up the great work you're doing on all ends. Oh, thanks, Darren. Such a lovely time, man. Thanks for having us. And nice talking to you, pal. Thanks for checking out the Paltrocast with Darren Paltrowitz. Produced by V13 Media. Theme song by Steve Schiltz. Audio mixing by Mark Pirro. Until next time, have a great Shabbos. Outrocast.